Today we're going to find ourselves back in the Old Testament. You know, I've been there a couple times recently. And, um, you know, when it comes to stories in the Old Testament and interaction of people, there is much to be gleaned that can help us today. And one such story is contained in chapters 22, 23, 24 in the book of Numbers. And I want to encourage you today to take time and to read it. Uh, because I'm going to hit the highlights and I'm going to move right through it, but there's a lot more in those chapters that you should read, you should take in. It involves several characters. It involves God, Balaam, Balak, and the Israelites. <clears throat> and as in events in the story unfold, it is interesting because we'll be able to see that, you know, the attacks that can come against the righteous are not always so obvious. And the people whom we think should recognize them or the traps, don't always. You know, also between what happens between these parties, also provides an example of a, the small disturbance becoming an avalanche. Of the slippery slope that we step on when we start to sin, that leads to a downhill slide and unforeseen consequences. Place we can find ourselves in. So we begin with the Israelites, and with the Israelites, they have seen the hand of God provide for them. They have been delivered from their enemies. The Lord is with them. They have been very successful in battle by the power of God, and the people surrounding them are taking notice. The Israelites are on a journey to the promised land, and their reputations preceding them because the enemies around them were aware of the miracles that had accompanied them and their exodus out of Egypt. And the people around them were at minimum on edge with the Israelites coming. The Amorites stepped up and they faced them and they were destroyed. The people of Bashan stepped up and they faced them and they were destroyed. And one of those that was on the periphery, one of those that was looking in and taking notice was the king of the Moabites, Balak. He couldn't help notice, because after wiping out the people of Bashan and destroying and crushing the Amorites, the Israelites arrive on the plains of Moab, and they camp out on his front lawn. And I'm sure that as he, as he oversees, and his vantage points where he can, seize all the, can see all the Israelites, as he's watching them, as he's looking over those encampments, thinking about how they just trounced to other people, that he was thinking, I'm next on the list. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he comes up with a plan. Numbers 22.2 says, Balak, son of Zippor, the Moabite king, knew what the Israelites had done to Amorites. And when they saw how many Israelites there were, he and his people were terrified. So he comes up with this plan, and he, reaching out, he reaches out to the Midianites, and together the elders of Midian and Moab with money in hand, go to summon this guy, Balaam. And I say money in hand because Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was a prophet who heard from God, and he did speak some true prophecies. But his heart was not right. And he fell into coveting, he fell into self-interest, he fell into practicing sorcery. And in verse 6 it says, 
Please come and curse them for me because they are so numerous. Then perhaps I will be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that the blessings fall on people you bless, and I also know that the people you curse are doomed. So Balaam had this reputation that he could bless or he could curse. But he could bless or he could curse with real consequences for the recipient. He wasn't pretending. He was considered to be powerful. So this whole thing starts with them summoning Balaam. And it's wise for us today to take a moment and pause and to realize who this guy was and why we should be aware of this example. Because several times he's, he comes up in the New Testament. Peter referred to him as the one who loved the wages of wickedness as a false teacher. Jude referred to him as the one who sells his soul for financial gain. Jesus refers to him as what he is responsible for with the Israelites and compares it to the false teaching in the church of Pergamum. He's one of the guys that uses an example in the seven churches of Revelation. So it's an important person to heed, to take example of. And for us, he's an example of this. Be careful. He's an example of this. Be discerning. Because although he did hear the word of God and he did have some true prophetic things to say, his heart was wrong and he was not about the truth at all. He was about prophet and he was about Balaam. And when Christ refers to his teaching with the church of Pergamum, it's because of this. Balaam's teaching took Christianity and he mashed it with the world and said it was okay. So he took truth and he mixed it with lies. And he could take truth and he could gain followers and then he could introduce lies for his own gain. And in the world today, people have a tendency to follow that without even questioning. They hear one thing that's true, they hear one thing that speaks to their heart, and it's probably from God. But guess what? Here comes the lies. But we're already following. We need to pay attention. We need to be spiritually discerning. We need to see if things line up with the word of God. It is wise because we need to be discerning when it comes to half-truths. We need to be discerning when it comes to the truth being mixed with lies and bringing us in a certain direction. So therefore, it's, it's wise to check out what people say, to, to watch what people's te- how people's testimonies play out, to see what people's true agendas are. Because for Balaam, it was all about Balaam. And you'll see as we go on how he reveals his heart even more. You know, today's battle, today's church, today's world, our culture, our society, these type of people are usually people pleasers. Using parts of, God, parts of God's truth. But they're also very careful usually not to offend. Why? Because they want followers. And many times it's because of cha-ching. It's the same thing Balaam was after. The motives might have been the same as him, money or self. But sooner or later, just as he will, will see with him, their actions reveal who they really are. But boy, if we can discern that earlier... Prevents a lot of destruction and a lot of heartache. So back to Balak, the king. So he wants to place a curse on the Israelites. He wants to make them weak so that maybe they will lose in battle to him. 
This is his whole plan, and he's willing to pay for it. And Balaam is all too happy to take the king's money, and he would do it with a smile, but he's aware of the God of the Israelites. And maybe it's due to fear, but he knows he's got to go check and get permission to do this with the Israelites, to curse them. So as the king had sent messengers, or the king had sent emissaries to offer him money for his services, he tells them, well, wait here overnight, and I'm going to go inquire of the Lord as what to do. And in verse 12, it says, the Lord told him this, Do not go with them, God told Balaam. You are not to curse these people, for I have blessed them. So Balaam sends them away, telling them that the Lord would not let me go. And really, he's not being faithful because he's not telling them that the Israelites are a blessed people. He's not telling them that God said they're not to be cursed. Why? Because he still desires to serve Balak. He still desires to collect money. And to make matters worse, the messengers that he tells go to Balak, and all they tell Balak is that Balaam refuses to come. So the message keeps getting changed. They don't say anything about what God says. This reminds me of that game when you have a line of people and you whisper something in the first person's ear, and by the time he gets to the tenth person, it has nothing to do with what you said originally. Well, the message just kept getting changed. And we don't really know. We want, you have to wonder what Balak would have really done if he had first heard first, the first message when God said, no, you can't curse them because I blessed them. But we don't know that because he's only acting to what he thinks is true. And it's wise for us to remember today that, you know, hearsay and guessing the truth can, can be used by the enemy to cause reactions, to force us, well, force us, nudge us to go against God. But when we're reacting on things that we don't know are true, when we're reacting to hearsay, we're reacting to, to gossip, there's going to be damage caused. There's going to be harm caused to someone and probably yourself. So here Balak thinks he's doing the right thing. He's, you know, he's continuing to move forward with his plan because, you know, maybe he would have changed his mind if he knew God said, don't do this. So as far as Balak was concerned, their answer that they gave him, that Balaam said, made him think that Balaam was holding out for more money. So he reacts that way. So sending the messengers away, Balaam sending the messengers away, only gets met with more determination by Balak. And he sends more princes of Moab. He sends more promises of money. He even says, you know, you can have favor, whatever you want. And the prophet's reaction, Balaam's reaction, is a glimpse of his heart where he's truly at. Because just instead of saying no... Because once again, he wants to help Balak out and collect that change. Instead of saying no, he goes back to the Lord. And he inquires one more time. But this time, although the Lord is not pleased with him going to Balak, he allows him to go with a stipulation. And in verse 20, he says, that night, came, that night came to Balaam, Excuse me, that night God came to Balaam and told him, since these men have come to you, get up and go with them, but be sure to do only what I tell you. And then in verse 22, it says, the Lord was furious with him. 
that he, he wanted to go with them because, excuse me, he knew his intentions. He knew where his heart was really at. But he lets them go and he says to them, listen, you can go, but you can only speak what I give you to speak. And the king meets him. And he said, what took you so long? You didn't think I could reward you? And that doesn't make any sense until you realize that the king thinks it's all about money. And Balaam just replies, I'm here now. But, you know, I can only speak what God gives me. This doesn't seem to phase Balak. And so the, he brings him out to a place, a vantage point, where he can see all the Israelites, probably the place where they first saw him. They were so fearful of all the people. And he has him build several altars. Balaam had him build several altars on different occasions here, making several sacrifices. And then three times, Balaam attempts to curse the Israelites. But every time he attempts to curse them, it turns into a blessing. Because the Lord had put a blessing in Balaam's mouth, and he could only speak what the Lord gave him. Balak was not happy with this. He's not happy because he couldn't have the people cursed. He was getting very frustrated because not only is Balaam not cursing them, but every time he opens his mouth, he blesses them. So Balak ends up saying it to him, and then Balak said to Balaam, if you aren't going to curse them, at least don't bless them. He's not happy. But it was at this point that Balaam just realized it was the Lord's intention that they were going to be blessed and that was it. So no curses. Now, at this point, you would think, done. Right? You would think that would be it. They'd leave them alone, the Israelites alone. Things would go on. But not so. Because Balaam still wants... He still wants to help Balak. And he plays a role that, in which the condition of his heart is really revealed. And he moves against the Israelites, but he moves against them in a different way. And when you read chapters 22, 23, and 24, it won't be apparent at first because this actually gets revealed in chapter 31. In verse 16, it says this. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. See, the Israelites could not be spiritually cursed because God had blessed them. Balak's plan to weaken them is not going to happen in the way he thought. Balaam came at this with a different approach. He comes through the side door And he gives advice that will lead the people to go astray. He gives advice that will lead the people down a path in which they'll end up defying God. And his plan is for the Moabite women to infiltrate the Israelite camp, to seduce the men, to intermarry, to draw them into worshiping other gods. Chapter 25, verse 1, it says, While Israelite was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in the worship and worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. 
Here Balaam, he's counting on the desires of the flesh to be the battleground as the Moabite women become the temptation and the snowball starts to go downhill, leading to rebellion. To rebellion against God, to intermarriage, to worshiping pagan gods. See, for someone at that time to come directly at the Israelites in a battle, to come directly at them, you know what would have happened? They would have all got united and cried out to the Lord. See, they were used to that. They were used to coming against pagan people and the Lord fighting against them. A frontal attack would have done nothing except unified them. But the personal attack, the individual battles, the sin what they wanted to do and what they did in the dark, that was effective. And some of them were losing that battle, and it was affecting everyone. There are times when the enemy prowls around looking for ways into lives, looking for ways into Christians' lives to divide, to cause harm, to cast doubt, to stop effectiveness for Christ. And sometimes those attacks are not so obvious. You know, like the Israelites usually comes with some introduction of some temptation. And it could be subtle, like false information, but it'll be something, something that nudges you in direction of sin, nudges you to act out of, out of pride, out of the flesh. See, the battle, just like the Israelites, is not always against the church as a whole, you know, the enemy's not coming through the front door and we all see him and we all drop to our knees and we start praying and we become one accord and we're crying out to the Lord. Not necessarily in front of our face because it comes as individuals, one attack at a time, one sin at a time, one temptation at a time. Because it's divide and conquer mentality. It's to make us ineffective. It's cause disruption, not unity. If we had a frontal assault, man, everybody would be on their knees relying on Jesus Christ. But the real battle is when we get attacked individually because sometimes we don't go to Jesus Christ. You know who we rely on? You know what we rely on? Our abilities, our tactics, our talents. And listen, it's even worse if you found yourself and you can get into survival mode and you've gotten through some really bad circumstances and you've gotten through some really bad threatening situations and you've gotten through fill in the blank on your own because when it comes to those times and you're a Christian, you may not go to the Lord first when it's about you. But when there's a brother and sister in Christ standing aside of you and the attack's coming this way, how fast is it that we grab hands and we drop to our knees and we cry out in the power of the Holy Spirit? To fight back. We need to bring the same mentality that when we're alone, that we don't stay alone. That we reach out, that we call out. That we go to our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, something's wrong, you've got to help me. And we seek the Lord's face with everything. 
Man, there's power in that. It's one attack at a time with a step in the wrong direction. And it's initiated by one word, this one word that plagues us so many times, and this word is choice. Some of the Israelites made ungodly choices, and they paid a terrible price. Scripture tells us that the Lord's anger burned against them. Thank you, Jesus, that's not me. The Lord's anger burned against them, and he instructed Moses to kill everyone who worshipped Baal. Kill them all. And then he sent a plague that wiped out 24,000 of them. The pain, the sorrow, the chaos, the death, even the act of rebellion were the result of one thing, and simply put, it was bad choices. This was your typical under-the-radar attack, laying out the temptation and seeing who would take the bait. Some chose the world over obeying the Lord, followed the flesh over reverence to God. They began to do the things that the pagans did. The worldly things growing importance and the things that they knew to be godly, they put on the back burner. And before they know it, they were over the line and now they had idols in their lives. They were worshiping Baal, the enemy of God, and spitting in the face of Jesus Christ. The bottom line with this is that they followed their will over God's and bad things happened. You know, I think when we start talking about the will of God, it's interesting because I think sitting here today, a lot of times when we talk about the will of God, we think of it in future terms. You know, what's the Lord's plan for me? What's God's will for me? How will God use me? And of course, this is part of it, but we miss what God has given us. God's revealed will, what he's given us in the Bible. We often skip over that sometimes. We can know what's required of us by God. We can know what we're supposed to do, not to do, what to avoid. We can learn about him, his warnings and his promises. But sometimes as Christians today, we put too much emphasis on what's around the next corner. We're always looking to the grass is always greener. We're always looking to, oh, this doesn't quite fit what I was expecting, so I'm going to change position and go over there. Are you kidding me? We're looking to the future all the time or what's up there because we're looking to be pleased. And the Holy Spirit's doing this. He's pointing right to the Bible. He's going, you want to go deeper? Start here. You want to grow spiritually in the Lord? Start here. See, I say this because the Israelites, they knew God's will because they had been clearly instructed, yet they still followed their own desires. And I don't believe anyone here would disagree that that same battle exists today. The battle of our desires versus God's desires still exists. There's a battle to supersede the will of God with our own. And once again, it comes down to one choice, a one word, choice. We have to choose to submit. 
especially, listen, it's tough, especially in this, our, our culture, in our society, where there's so many things that have no eternal significance, but we seemed, they seem to call our name. The world has taken certain things and, they've given it, and it has given it importance. And it has said to us, it's necessary when it's really not, and it's really not important. It's a matter of what we choose to follow. Listen, with the Israelites... Yeah, they sinned, but then it could have stopped there. But guess what? Then they married, and it could have stopped there. But then they worshiped Baal, and God stopped it there. If we really want to know what is important and necessary for us as Christians and for the lost, the answers lie in Scripture. The question is, do we want to know? You know, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he used the Our Father as an example. And in verse 10, he says this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, this really hit home for me because... I do pray. I pray quite a bit. And I had to stop and examine myself and how I'm praying and what I really want, because you'll agree with this, and we already know. We have the laundry list. We all do, okay? We go, and we're getting on our knees, and we're pressing into God. And, and now, even hopefully, through teaching and through preaching, you guys know that we got to take time, and we got to listen to what God does. But, I mean, do we get on our knees, and we actually go to God and say, Thy will be done? Or if you don't like that phrase, I will be done. How about, Lord, have your way in my life. Because I really don't think we pray that way. We pray, Lord, have your way in my life except for this. Listen, as Christians, we should be drawn to the will of God for our lives. We should desire the will of God for our lives. But I really believe this. I believe some are afraid. Because praying thy will be done means that we've already submitted to it because of the source, not because of the answer. And for some, this can be really scary. Why? Because it may come with these images of idols that need to go. It may come with choices that need to be repented. And it certainly will come that lives that need to be realigned with the word of God. When we pray, thy will be done means that we're willing to trust Jesus Christ unconditionally and admitting that his plan is better regardless of how it looks to our eyes. (laughs) 
In the face of temptation, some of the Israelites fell going against God's will. But let me ask you this. Do you think when the Moabite woman first went in there and the guys fell to temptation, that they thought that this sin was going to have them at idols worshiping Baal? I don't think so. Probably not. As small as we think the bad choice is, as small as we think the sin is, and we struggle with that idol in our life, we have to be careful because it's a slippery slope. And we could slide right into more unrighteousness with harmful consequences. You know, today is a call to self-examination. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to go deeper with God. It's a call to get deeper in his word. It's a call to be in prayer. It's a call to think about and pray, thy will be done. And not to be fearful because you belong to Jesus Christ. Don't you want to do his will? God's plan is better than ours. I'm going to ask Kate to come up, and she's going to play a song. And I would like you to take time and to self-examine and look at these things. You know, it's interesting because uh, Kate was asking me about songs, and I just I had this sense that God was going to line, the Holy Spirit was going to line something up with the sermon. And, and I walked in the office, and I, and I didn't want to tell her what, even what it was entitled because I didn't want to sway what she said. And she said, I can't get this song out of my head. This is the one that's been on my heart. And she told me what it was about, and I said, oh, that's the one. So let's uh, take a moment and press into God. And listen, this is a very personal thing. You want to grow in the Lord? You want to get deeper in the Lord? He wants you to come to him. Go to him. Amen.